Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some free ebooks and drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, including some episodes on breakups and relationship management. That's where all the basics are, so get a handle on that first. We've got boot camps running every single month here in Hollywood, California. Details on those at theartofcharm.com. Looking forward to meeting all you guys here at AOC. All right, today, Nick Morgan, author of Power Cues, such an interesting expert today, really a guy that just totally gets the art of charm principles and actually has been independently researching them for years, so I, sh I shouldn't really call them the art of charm principles, but there's a ton of overlap here, and it's great. He really gets into the science as well. We're going to talk about how unconscious behavior determines our communication, which is nothing new for AOC fans, but we're really going to dive into the nitty-gritty as well and the idea that most of our communications are actually unconscious, and that mirror neurons can be our best friend or a foe, and how your body never lies even when we try to force it. We're also gonna discuss the advantages of being conscious of our nonverbal communications, controlling the emotions of others by cultivating certain emotions in ourselves, and learning to observe the influences upon you via the emotions of others. It's kind of a tricky concept here, but it's really, really interesting, and even I learned a bunch of stuff on this one, as well as focusing on the right signals instead of focusing just on what we want, and the primal power of vocal tonality and how it becomes subconsciously aligned with those around us, which I just found amazing and totally, totally new for me. And last but not least, focusing on our emotional power in crucial moments and leveraging it for success, and a letter from a U.S. Army Green Beret who's a graduate of the Art of Charm program, all for you here this week, so enjoy. Essentially, you're one of America's top communication theorists and coaches, and I mean, you've been teaching people in Fortune 500 and Fortune 50 companies, you've been writing for CEOs and presidents, and everything from congressional testimony to a TED Talk to television, which pales in comparison, right? So. How did you learn all of this stuff? I mean, are you, is this purely academic or is this something you learned through experience? Tell us how you got here uh, briefly and then we'll get into the, the nitty gritty. Great, thanks. Yeah, so I started out as an academic. I taught public speaking, uh, got a PhD in rhetoric and um, philosophy, studied the, the ancient greats, the Romans and the Greeks. Um, and then I got an invitation to write speeches for the governor of Virginia. And the invitation was couched in the following terms. Uh, well, Morgan, you're an academic. Why don't you see if you can make it in the real world where speeches are actually written and given? So wow. I, couldn't, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> I mean, that's was that really the invitation? Because that's kind of, I mean, did they know that you were going to bite on that? Because kind of sounds a little bit like that guy had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Uh, he did. He was a good buddy of mine, so he knew the best way to uh, to hooked me was to challenge me a little bit right. and say, and he was also from the, had been from the academic world. <laughs> so the two of us, two of us were birds of a feather and I learned fast. Let me tell you, 
in the governor's office. So Yeah, I'll bet. I mean, that's the place, yeah, where academics go to see if they can make it in the real world, right? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. yeah. And you've got a book called Power Cues, which is essentially about how our unconscious behavior determines our communication. And that's huge because one of the core principles at The Art of Charm, which I've beaten to death on the show, you know, can never really focus on too much, is that our beliefs influence our actions, which influence our results or our outcomes. And so if our unconscious behavior determines our communication, then essentially that's the same thing, right? Our, our beliefs, our unconscious behaviors, which are caused by beliefs, determine our communication and nothing could be more true. So what we're gonna talk about is promoting conscious control of our communication, dot, 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 better life, right? Exactly, that's what I get excited about is, and especially how the recent brain science has shown us how that unconscious mind works and how much it influences our everyday behavior. For one thing, how do we know that? And two, what does that mean? Because it's kind of lost on a lot of us, myself included, where they're like, your lizard brain does this, and then your unconscious brain makes you do that. And you know, it took me years to kind of realize, oh, okay, there are things that I believe that cause me to act in a certain way, which of course cause me to do things, because people who are at effect or are victims or whatever, they're looking at everything totally differently, where when, no matter what happens, I always lose because the world is against me instead of my <laughs> beliefs are such that I'm not a successful person, therefore I never have any money, right? The way it works, and let me give a simple example, and then it becomes clear. So let's say you're, in my world, you're, you're an executive going into an important business meeting, and you're a little nervous because of that. The stakes are high in that business meeting. Maybe you're trying to ask for a raise. Maybe you're, you have to lay somebody off. Maybe you're afraid you're going to get laid off. Whatever the issue is, something makes the stakes high. So you're, you're nervous about it. You walk in there, and what happens is your unconscious mind has already registered that nervousness and started to create in your body that fight-or-flight syndrome we're all familiar with, the adrenaline, the heart racing, the, the flushed cheeks, the sweaty palms, however the symptoms turn up in you. Uh, and what happens is we have these things called mirror neurons in our heads, that leak emotions. So if I walk in with nervousness, I'm going to share that nervousness with the other people in the room because their mirror neurons will fire the same nervousness back at me. Uh, and it's like an echo chamber. It gets worse. So we all sort of egg each other on and get into that nervous state. And so you can imagine what that does for my executive who's walked in there trying to get something done. If everybody's got this sort of low level of nervousness that's being handled by their unconscious mind. That makes them uncomfortable. It makes their attention span shorter. It makes them less likely to, to listen and to want to exchange. It makes them less likely to trust each other. So you're heading for disaster. That's what the unconscious mind can do. And what I talk about in the book is how to get control of that consciously so you end up with the outcome you want rather than the one that your unconscious mind is going to hand you. That makes sense. And you know what? Furthermore, it also makes people not like you and not know why. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because you make them nervous or edgy or because you're carrying around a bad attitude and you leak that attitude to them and suddenly everybody in the room is intense. And we've all also had the opposite experience, let me hasten to say, where somebody walks in the room and everybody just lights up and starts smiling because they're carrying so much joy around with them. That's very cool, too. But that's the flip side of it. That definitely makes a lot of sense and is also far more rare, right? Because right. unfortunately, <laughs> we can all think of examples of both uh, and it's harder to think of the one. Uh, it's definitely the case in dating as well, and we're not exclusively a dating show, but I always look for ways to sort of link it to that. 
for example, if you're nervous walking up to somebody of the opposite sex or meeting somebody of the opposite sex at a party or something like that, and so you're nervous, those mirror neurons are firing in her and she's nervous, she's not going, you know, she doesn't have a conscious response to that that goes, you know what, he might have been nervous because I'm really beautiful and this is an awkward social situation and that <laughs> made him feel nervous and therefore my mirror neurons made me feel nervous. She just goes, I felt creepy around that guy. I don't, that guy's creepy. I just don't know what it is. Exactly. In my world, I talk about that in public speaking. You, the speaker walks out on stage and, and makes the audience edgy. And it's not enough that you, exactly to your point, that the audience sits there consciously and thinks, hmm, he's probably a little nervous and his mirror neurons are leaking to mine and that makes me a little bit nervous, but that's okay. We'll all get through this and I still want to hear what he has to say. Right. No, that's not the way it works. They just go, ooh. This is not fun. I want to get out of here. Yeah, this guy's awkward. If right. they even identify it as him, they right. might just think, I don't know, I'm hungry or I don't yep. know, I'm bored or something. Yep. I just don't want to be here anymore. Yeah, there's just a vibe in the room that I don't like. Yeah, that's no good, especially if you're out there trying to sell your shareholders on the idea that your next quarter is going to be the best ever or please don't quit <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. We're going whatever. to get through this. As bad as it looks, we're going to get through this. Yeah, if you walk in... Uh, with uh, that attitude, uh, the nervous attitude, and you're trying to make a, a counter-argument that, hey, things are going to be fine, then what I say is every communication like that is two conversations, and this would apply in your dating situation too. It's the content and the body language. And when the two are aligned, you can be successful. When they're not aligned, what happens is that the body language always trumps the content. So to make a very simple example, again, if I'm at work and my spouse tells me, um, pick up milk and eggs on the way home, and I walk in the door and suddenly realize, oh, darn, I've forgotten the milk and eggs, and she's standing there. Uh, and I say, hi, hon, how are you? And she's got her arms folded and a scowl on her face. She'll say, fine, because she's a grown-up, you know, right. pretend not to say exactly what's on her mind. But which do I believe? Do I believe the content, which is the word fine, or do I believe the body language, which is the crossed arms and the scowl? Of course, the body language always trumps it. So you need to think about consciously, how am I going to control that body language? How am I going to control the attitude behind that body language so that I can make the right impression and get people to go the way I want them to go in a meeting, in a, a speech, in a conversation? Essentially, and that's important to sort of repeat here, every communication is two conversations, the verbal and the nonverbal, essentially, or the content yes. and the body language. Right. and. We talk a lot about that being congruent in law enforcement situations or even just casual business or friendship situations where if the two are aligned, you're congruent. And if they're not aligned, you might have a difficulty communicating. Sometimes in a law enforcement situation, it could mean that the person's not telling the truth because exactly. the body really doesn't lie. Are you, are you on board with that? Does that make sense? The body doesn't lie or it's harder for the body to lie maybe? Much harder. There are parts of the body that we've learned to control reasonably well. So as grown-ups, we've learned to control our faces. And again, I talk about in the business situation, but we don't reveal our full feelings typically in a business meeting. Maybe we're bored out of our minds, but we don't sit there with a scowl on our face. We keep the face reasonably bland. We've learned how to do that. But typically, the rest of our body gives us away. So we may be tapping our finger we may be uh, twitching, we may be moving restlessly in our chair, we may be scowling uh, slightly, uh, and that may be leaking out a little bit, but mostly it comes out in the rest of the body. Yeah, it's really important to be aware of that second conversation and realize that while most of us are reasonably good at controlling certain aspects of our body language, we can't control all of it very well, typically.
And that's the trick, right? So we actually have to align our beliefs with our intent in order for our body to follow in line because when your beliefs are in line, then your body will do whatever that subconscious belief is telling it to. So then you'll be more congruent. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It shows up in performance and in anxiety and in key moments if you've got an unconscious belief that's attached to some memory when things went badly for you. So the classic one I get in public speaking coaching is somebody who says, yeah, I have this memory, the sixth grade, I had to give a presentation and it went badly. I forgot and got nervous and started to cry and everybody laughed at me. And and so what happens then is that has a lot of powerful emotions attached to it. And when we come back to it, a similar activity, we get up on stage and try to speak as a grown-up, that unconscious memory triggers the nervousness and makes it worse. And it triggers that belief in us that says, oh, this is going to go badly just like it did in the sixth grade. And, and so then our, our bodies start to act that out. We act defensive or we act nervous or we act shy or we act clumsy or something like that. So that's how it works. Excellent. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense that you would have maybe some weird trauma in the past. And it, it's kind of funny that some guy who's a 46-year-old executive might go up in front of a group of people and have that trauma from when he was 16 or 6 come back to haunt him in a really crucial moment that actually matters. Well, I, uh, I talk about this in the book and I say we have to think like Olympic athletes. So the Olympic athletes have known for a long time that they're dealing at, of course, at the very top of the uh, world uh, performance. So the absolute best people. And it may be, what, hundreds of a second that separate the winners from the losers. And so if anything, if the slightest kind of twitch or unconscious fear affects their performance, they're going to lose. And so they spend a lot of time visualizing and working on their emotions so that they have a completely positive, focused attitude going into it. And what I tell people is that's hard work, but it's worth it because they want for those people because they want the gold medal. And I say it's the same in the business world, same in your workplace. If you want to succeed, if you want to become a leader, then it's worth it to do that work, to get your mind straight and clear, get rid of those uh, fears and doubts and focus on being successful. If you don't do that work, then what's going to happen is your unconscious mind is going to trip you up at a crucial moment. Yeah, that's terrible and terrifying, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so would you say that most of our communication is unconscious then? If most of our communication is our body and our body is sort of driven by our beliefs, which are largely unconscious, does that then translate to most of our communications are unconscious? It's important to understand how it works. So we have this sort of working theory of the brain, this common sense theory of the brain that the neuroscientists call the Mr. Spock theory, which is that we're kind of logical. So we get a conscious thought like, uh, I say to myself, Nick, you're thirsty. So then I direct my body to reach for the bottle of water, I drink it, and I slake my thirst. So job done. It's very logical. It's very tidy. Unfortunately, the brain doesn't work like that. What it happens instead is that we have this huge unconscious mind. It can handle something like 11 million bits of information a second. So it's working really hard. The conscious mind, by the way, can only handle about 40 bits of information a second. 11 million to 40. So we've evolved to push a lot of activities down to our unconscious mind, like maintaining our heartbeat so we don't have to think about that, like breathing so we don't have to think about that except in rare circumstances, like maintaining our body temperature so we don't have to think about that. Uh, unfortunately, we've also evolved to do certain crucial things in our unconscious mind, 
that would make a lot more sense to think about consciously. So one of them is decision-making. So here's what happens. We get an unconscious wish, desire, intent. We make a decision. We say, I want that. And then our bodies start to act it out. We literally embody that decision. And only after that, and it's nanoseconds typically, but it can be up to nine seconds later, do we become aware of it in the conscious mind? So it's literally true that our conscious minds spend most of our day explaining to ourselves why we just decided what we did, why we just did what we did. And if we're honest about it with ourselves, we've all had that experience where we go, I want that red Mercedes or I want that blue Corvette. And then we work out conscious reasons why we should have it, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you start to call it backwards rationalization. I don't know if that's yep. even a technical term, but that's what we call it. Yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> yeah, where you're like, okay, yeah, do I want that? And then you're like, yeah, I kind of do. And the rest of your brain power is devoted to being like, I could totally use that in my driveway because there's practical value to having a Corvette because its resale value is high. And exactly. <laughs> there's not a lot of surface area if I need to repaint it, so that's cheap. And, it, you know, it's if you drive it slow enough, it's reasonably fuel efficient, and you just start really stretching yeah, right. For reasons to buy this and reasons to do that. And we do that with everything, right? Yep. Not just cars yep. and things we want to purchase. Yeah, so decision-making is one of the key things. Communications is another where it's largely determined by our unconscious mind. So the example in communication is when you see somebody coming into your field of view, your unconscious mind immediately starts asking the question, is this person friend or foe? And you decide that, by the way, at about 12 feet away. Your unconscious mind decides it in a nanosecond. And the reason it does is because at 12 feet, you still have time to react. You have time to get your fists up and, and fight or run for your life or something. So that 12-foot barrier is crucial. And you can test this yourself, not in a city like New York City, but in a small town. If you're walking down the sidewalk, you'll notice that you'll make eye contact with people initially at 12 feet away. And it's weirdly precise how often and how regularly you do that. Um, so fight or flight is a good example. The friend or foe, rather, is a good example of what happens in communication and how it's determined by the unconscious mind. That's decided before you're even consciously aware of it. Wow, that is interesting. I never really knew about the 12 feet rule. That makes sense, though. And I bet if we... It's, unfortunately, it's probably really hard to keep that in mind and then not skew the results if you're trying to observe it in yourself. But maybe you can watch other sit in a park and watch other people walk by each other right and see right. see which yeah. distance that works another fun one to watch is that typically uh depends a little bit on the kids we have a lot of crazy kids around these days they the, the amount of adhd apparently has gone up enormously at least that's what they tell me but right. uh but if you notice it, watch uh, parents and kids in a mall if the toddler the two-year-old starts to wander away from the adult the kid will look back at the adult at about 12 feet, and at about 12 feet, the parent will say, oh, no further, and that's typically the barrier because, again, at 12 feet, you can still save that kid. You can dive for them and remove the danger, whatever it is, but more than 12 feet, and you'd be too late. So that 12 foot is crucial because that's the human reaction space. Oh, that's interesting, and hence the evolution of that being our safety zone. Right. Yeah. That's the friend or foe zone. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right, back to the show. So if most of our communications tend to be sort of unconscious in that way, is there an advantage and is it possible to become more conscious of them? I mean, obviously on this show, we spend a ton of time talking about being more conscious of behavior. So I guess we do it for dating charisma and social purposes. Does it make sense to then become 
even hyper-conscious of our behavior, our nonverbal communication. I mean, what is it that you endeavor to do in your books and when you train others? I think it's absolutely important to get conscious control of your unconscious behavior when the stakes are high. In other words, uh, on a Saturday night, if we're relaxed, we're just sitting around with friends and drinking beer and eating pizza, something like that. We don't have to worry too much. Probably we're in a good mood and our unconscious uh, communications will take care of themselves. Everybody's friends, right? But when the stakes are high, when it's a negotiation or in, in your case where it's a, a first date, uh, where it's a, a speech in, in, in my world, then when the stakes are high, you really want to control your uh, attitudes, your emotions, and your unconscious behavior because otherwise you're leaving the success or failure of that important meeting or negotiation or speech to chance. Um, and you don't do that with the content. I mean, people who prepare speeches spend enormous amounts of time preparing their slides and thinking about what they're going to say. And then they spend zero amount of time thinking about how they're going to say it. Uh, and to me, that's putting the emphasis exactly wrong. It's leaving it to chance. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe you'll happen to be in a good mood that day, but probably it won't. Probably you'll be nervous and you'll undercut yourself in some way. So I say don't leave it to chance. Do take charge of your unconscious uh, communications. And I, that's what I lay out in the book, how to do that. It's not easy to do. It takes time and practice, but the results, the, the payoff is huge. So basically, we want to be really careful about what emotions and things we convey for meetings, conversations, presentations, etc. And as well as not just how we show up when we walk into a room, but where do we begin? If we're going to teach the audience something here, where do we begin? Where do you want to begin? Well, I start with self-awareness. So I start with telling people, get aware of how you stand, how you walk. And the easy way to do this, if it's too hard to start with yourself, is just to sit down in a restaurant and watch other people. Watch how they come in and start asking yourself the question, does that person walk in confidently with energy or does that person totter in and, and exhausted and maybe hungover? <laughs> you can easily tell after you start watching for a while who are the people who look like they're in charge, they're confident, they're positive, they know what's going on, and the people who don't. And that's just a very simple dynamic, and we need to get subtler with that. But then we want to pay attention to ourselves and start noticing how do we carry ourselves when we walk into that room for that first meeting or that first date. If we tend to carry all our history accumulating in our shoulders and in our posture and the way we stand and the expression on our face, you know, that old saying that before you're 40, you have the face God gave you. After you're 40, you have the face that you deserve. <laughs> I've never heard that before, but that's hilarious. Yeah, there's some truth to that because people who have a bad attitude go around with a perpetual scowl. You know, at some point, the lines form <laughs> on your face, and that's what you end up with. So in, in a more serious way, you want to start becoming aware of how do I stand? What's the message I'm conveying to everybody else when I walk into that room, when I go into that meeting. And that's the first step is just to take stock of that and become aware of it. And it's best to do it first without judgment. Just notice how you do it. And then once you figure that out, then say, is that the persona that I want to bring to other people or do uh, I want to change that? Sure. And then, and then it's a matter of choice. It's your choice whether you want to change that or not. That's the first step. Yeah, so we essentially, that's a good point. It is our choice. So we, we want to take control of our presence and change our thinking and the messages sent to those around us by making the choice to either be a sourpuss or to go through the process of creating different beliefs and mindsets that create different behaviors that we then showcase to other people. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm working with a speaker who's uh, he's an entrepreneur. He's very successful. He's had a couple of books, and he's a very big guy and just sort of at rest. He's got a kind of a scowl is too strong, but he's got a kind of fierce expression on his face. And as he started this process, he learned, much to his surprise, that he was very intimidating to other people. And not as surprised anybody else. Right. Everybody's like, duh. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I knew that. Of course he would. But he didn't know that. He didn't have that self-awareness. And so then he was faced with the decision. Do I want to continue to be intimidating like that or do I want to soften the edges and be a little friendlier? So that was his choice. But the awareness, he couldn't have made that decision without the awareness. And so that was the first crucial step. So we talked a little bit earlier about the mirror neurons and how those are sort of bouncing off other people all of the time. Does that mean then as a leader or even just in our daily lives, if we're just being social and hanging out, that sort of brings up the point of if we cultivate those emotions and those moods in ourselves, if they're contagious, then we could theoretically cultivate whatever emotions we wanted in others and ourselves, and then that would happen. Is that oversimplification? No, that's essentially correct. The hard work about that is controlling your own emotions. And that's why I, I suggest to people only do it when the stakes are high, when it's really important. Uh, because most of the time we walk around with a kind of a mishmash of emotions in our head. We've got our to-do list. We've got, we're thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about the end of the day. We're thinking about the date we have tonight. We're trying to remember to uh, plan our vacation. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff bopping around in our head. And so that isn't emotional focus. Emotional focus is hard work. But that is what actors and politicians do when they do a scene or when they give an important speech is they've learned how to focus those emotions. And we call that charisma. That We say that actor is really charismatic. But it's not magic, some sort of fairy dust that somebody sprinkled on them or a God-given talent. What they've learned how to do, they've trained themselves how to do, is to focus their emotions for that scene, for that moment. Uh, and you saw this, if you remember back in the campaigns, uh, one of the most striking images I still have from the, the uh, McCain-Obama campaign, the presidential campaign, was seeing the two of them walk up on stage. And Obama bounds up on stage. He's a tall guy anyway. And he's got a lot of energy. He looks like a president running up on the stage. McCain, on the other hand, this is completely unfair, but it's the reality. He was tortured in Vietnam, right. and so walking for him is difficult. So when he walks up on stage, he moves slowly, he moves stiffly, he looks like an old man, he's a little bent, he doesn't have that kind of confident swagger that Obama had. Even before either one of them opened their mouths, unfairly, Obama looked more presidential than McCain did. And so that's, the, that, that's what's at stake in these kind of situations. But had McCain focused his emotions to be more positive, had he worked on that, um, then he could have acquired some of the swagger that Obama had as he walked up uh, on stage looking every inch a president. Interesting. So essentially, he, yeah, he really did have an unfair advantage there because he, he couldn't change those things about himself. But Obama had cultivated that over years and years. Yeah, and Obama in particular, I've studied, I studied both candidates, of course. It's a great time to study body language. And Obama was really good at focusing, turning that on, and getting ready to, to get in that moment and, and run up on the stage with that kind of energy. Whereas McCain was a more straightforward guy, I think, he, less of a performer. He just, when he came on stage, he carried on everything, all his cranky thoughts and attitudes and to-do lists like most of us do. And <laughs> as a result... He didn't look as presidential. 
Interesting. Yeah, that's... Leaving politics aside, please right. don't send me the hate mail either way because uh, this is not about right or wrong. It's just about the reality of how those two men showed up. Sure. No, that's perfectly acceptable. I purposely stay well away from political topics on this show unless it has yeah. something to do with, you know, it's just a freaking minefield. Oh, it absolutely <laughs> it's is. It's not, yeah. not worth it. Interesting. So we're constantly being influenced, of course, by other people's presence, other people's emotions, and we can influence other people's emotions by changing and cultivating and mastering or whatever, harnessing, I guess, our own emotional state. Are we able to train ourselves to observe the unconscious emotions that we're receiving from others as well? So, for example, if I'm transmitting emotions, can I also work on figuring out what emotions other people are transmitting to me? Yes, absolutely. And I spent a lot of time, a couple of chapters in the book, talking about that. It's really important uh, to learn how to read other people so that you can guard against, in effect, negative emotions eating into you. And we've all had that experience in the workplace where there's one particular worker who's just a real grump and brings everybody down and makes them miserable and it, and it kind of ruins your day. So a little bit, it's it's just focusing about on avoiding that kind of problem, that letting other people bring you down to a certain extent. But it's also helpful because, you remember, the unconscious mind gets the intent, and then the body starts to act on that intent. If we watch other people's body language, we can actually know what they've decided a split second or two before they've, they know themselves. So by watching other people's body language, you can be one step ahead of them, which is always useful in a business setting or a work setting. And it's not because you want to manipulate them necessarily, but just because you know where they're headed. That's always that's a good thing to know. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we get started with that process? I mean, that almost seems like some sort of kung fu at some level. <laughs> well, there are a few basic questions you want to start to ask yourself. And I lay this all in the book. It takes some mental training. It takes a while. But the first one to notice is very simple, which is start to listen to your unconscious mind because your unconscious mind is already picking this stuff up and has already decided it's really expert at doing this. So uh, the first question to ask unconscious mind is, is this person sitting across from me or in the room here open or closed to me? And the basics of open and closed body language are pretty familiar to everybody and rather easy to, to spot. So people who are closed tend to put their hands over their, their torsos or across their torsos, or they clench their hands together. Uh, maybe they put their face in their hands, they lean on their, uh, on their hands, um, and they uh, hide part of their face with it. We've all seen closed behavior. At, as is most extreme, they'll cross their arms over their chest. That's a particularly obvious uh, symbol. The, by contrast, when you see somebody who's open, they're hands are apart from their torso and they tend to reach toward you when they are gesturing. And there's a whole retinue of gestures which are open and comfortable and embracing, if you will. Beyond that, people tend to move toward people that they're comfortable with and away from people they're not comfortable with. They, they tend to move toward people when they want to connect with them and away when they want to do the opposite. So you can see when people are leaning into the conversation or leaning back from the conversation. If you add that, the distance they maintain, and the open or closed behavior, you can start to get a pretty clear sense rather quickly on that initial read of body language. And so you can say, basically, what you're trying to find out is, who are my friends here? Who's aligned with me? Who's opposed? Who's, who's not my friend? 
And this works really well in dating situations too, by the way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, of course, because you can tell if somebody's interested in you, uh, whether or not they're faking it, of course, and because, yep. again, the body has a lot of trouble lying. Unfortunately, we also do the backwards rationalization where we take one signal, take it out of context because we want to believe something. That's right, and, or, and uh, men are particularly prone to this. There, there are a couple of stages in the flirtation sequence, which is something that, that body language specialists love to study. So uh, we know, or we like to think we know all about the flirtation sequence. And the first couple of steps in it involve the woman making prolonged eye contact with the guy, and she may then do a little grooming, so she may stroke her hair, right. uh, that kind of thing. And the problem is... Those are only the first couple of steps. She's just indicating, she's signaling interest. She's not saying the deal is done. <laughs> right. And guys tend to get a little over-enthusiastic, and they see the little the grooming, and or they get the eye contact, and unconsciously they think, hey, I'm home, I'm free, this is it, we're done. Uh, and so they assume too much. There is a whole flirtation sequence, and it's good to learn that sequence and sort of observe the rules of it and to take the... Uh, each step in turn, and then you can determine accurately whether, in fact, the, the, the other person is interested in you or it was just an initial mild flirtation. That's something we discuss here a lot. And, bet, yeah. you know, that's, that's essentially why the show was founded. And it's funny because this is an extreme example, but it's almost like she told me never to call her again, but I'm pretty sure she twiddled her hair a couple times during the conversation. <laughs> so I think it might have just been, you know, I think she's maybe just playing hard to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wishful thinking. Yeah. It happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, I might be wearing that martini, but I'm pretty sure that eye contact was a nanosecond and a half longer than it would have been otherwise. <laughs> there you <Yeah>. go. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Now back to the good stuff. Now, what about vocal tonality? I mean, is that something that you consider part of nonverbal communication? And is that something that we should be focusing on as well if we're aspiring leaders or aspiring charismatic individuals? Yeah, the research on the voice is incredible and really surprising, and it, it hasn't reached the sort of general population, the awareness of the general population yet. So here's a real way to get an edge, but it's not simple. What turns out happens is that when we get people together in a room, within a very few minutes, about five minutes, we unconsciously elect a leader, and we do it with the sounds of our voices. It's just incredible. What happens is we're all very good at telling each other's voices apart. So already you and I have had a conversation for half an hour or so here, and we now recognize each other's voices. And you probably have a hundred voices that you recognize, family, friends, loved ones, and so on. And each one of those voices is subtly different. We call that the timbre or the vocal tonality of the voice that en enables us to tell the difference. And the way that difference shows up in terms of scientific measurement, is in what are called the undertones and the overtones to the pitch that the voice uh, sounds at. You're making sense so far? Yeah, that's this it's is a, a little it's, complicated. It yeah. is, yeah. I was just going to say yeah. it's a little bit more technical than, than I was expecting, but I'm with yeah. you. Okay, so, so yeah, every voice speaks at a pitch. In other words, if I were to hold that pitch like that, you could find that note on a piano and play it. And it sounds like my voice because it has particular undertones and overtones that go with that pitch. Well, researchers thought for years that the undertones and overtones were just random, but it turns out what happens is we line up those undertones with the leader in the room, and we do so within about five minutes. What? Get a small group together. It's absolutely crazy. 
but it's, uh, it, it's been measured and shown scientifically. It's amazing. It's an amazing finding. And what I talk about in the book is you can increase the power of your undertones so that it makes it more likely that you'll be the leader. It's a phenomenal finding. Oh, my the, God. That's yeah, amazing. I did not, I've never heard that before. It's almost like, pardon the crude example, it's like synchronizing menstrual cycles or something. Yeah, like, it, well, it is. It's, it's very basic. You can understand in an evolutionary sense, why it would matter, because the groups of cave people would need to pick out a leader very quickly if danger started to show up suddenly uh, at the front of the cave, right? You'd have to uh, know who the leader was without a lot of other complicated ways like we have nowadays, rank and serial number to determine who the leader is. So uh, it, it makes sense in an evolutionary way, but it's a very strange way to think about leadership today. We teach a lot of vocal tonality on the show and at The Art of Charm, we did a whole show on vocal tonality, but, and I knew that it was good to establish charisma, leadership, et cetera, but I had no idea that other people matched theirs to match ours. Yep, we all line up behind the leader, and I will tell you that a bit of research I saw recently was precisely on Obama and McCain, the two debates, and this research team studied the recordings of, of the three debates that those two uh, presidential candidates had with one another, and in the first two debates, Obama's matched his undertones to McCain, and McCain was ahead in the polls. In the third debate, about halfway through, Obama suddenly took over. His undertones suddenly became the leading ones, and McCain switched and matched his with Obama's. And what's interesting is the polls started to switch immediately after that third debate. Go figure. Yeah. Is it, now, is it just pitch, or is cadence in here as well? It's just those undertones, so it's just the quality of the voice. It's the way people used to talk about it and the way actors uh, and radio people talked about it was resonance. They said a voice has to have a good radio voice is, has a lot of resonance, and we can teach people to have more resonance by breathing, but it also turns out it's related to pitch. So your voice has the most resonance, that is it has, puts out those strongest undertones at a certain pitch in your range. So in order to, to become a better leader, as strange as this sounds, you have to find your vocal range and then find what your most important leadership tone is within your own personal range. Everybody has a different vocal range. Um, and so there's a certain pitch that you ought to be speaking at to be most authoritative. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you speak at the same pitch all the time. That would be strange. You'd sound like huh, uh, yeah. a monk intoning. I mean, if I spoke at the same pitch all the time and never moved my voice up or down, it would sound really strange and you'd get irritated. Right. So, no, I, I need to move it up and down. But the point is when I'm trying to be persuasive, when I'm trying to talk you into something, then I need to bring my pitch down to its maximum resonance point, the point at which it has those strongest undertones and it sounds most like a leader. That's Isn't impressive. That crazy? Yeah, that yeah. is crazy. I, I did not expect that to be the case. It's so unusual and almost, if unless you're really familiar with evolutionary psychology and things like that, which I guess you and I both are, but many are, are not, I would yeah. never have expected that to make any sense. But it totally does. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that it's like for any of your listeners who have read the Frank Herbert classic sci-fi book, Dune, there's a, uh, a thing in the book called The Voice that certain leaders use to control other people. And this is the actual real-life version of Dune's voice, which is wow. just kind of amazing. That is impressive and, and very cool as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if all this is happening unconsciously, then our unconscious mind essentially holds us back and or propels us forward. 
if we can sort of gain mastery over that, then we have a huge advantage over other people. Influencing people is, consciously is one thing, but doing it subconsciously is even more powerful because they don't necessarily know what's happening. Precisely. They just get a good vibe or they think, I want to do what this guy asked me to without actually thinking about it consciously. I, I agree. It's more powerful this way because conscious arguments can always be made and, and we all have this sense that there are always two sides to every argument and we'll, we have strong feelings about which way we vote and which way we, uh, how we spend our money and that, what jobs we take or don't take. But it, at the unconscious level, it's much easier to sway us than we realize. Right. We're all thinking, oh, this is based on logic and I'm a very logical person and this is all rational thought. And meanwhile, it's just like you're the result of a lot of marketing that's happened <laughs> subconsciously and made you think that way. Yeah. And a lot of memories which have emotions attached to them and are more or less important to you. So if your parents were cold to you or warm to you or if you had trauma at an early age, all those things add up to the way you walk, the way you stand, the way you comport yourself, and that affects your success or failure in life. That's the issue. That's why we want to take control of it. Yeah, definitely. No kidding. Wow. So we can shed our unconscious mind of these blocks and these impediments to success, I guess, but how do we do that? It, we do that by taking control of it and practicing? Yeah, and that's the hard part is it takes a lot of repetition to get through to that unconscious mind because remember, it's got some sort of trauma or a memory attached to something important. So you've got to uh, train that mind otherwise. And, and the best analogy that I explain in the book is, again, to go back to like an Olympic athlete, the way they get ready to do that ski run at super top speed flawlessly with no mistakes is by playing it over and over and over again in their minds so that the mind is not going to trip them up. Yeah. And, and they also have a mantra that they establish for themselves. They'll talk themselves into it. So whenever a negative thought comes up, so imagine uh, the skier who's fallen on the previous run or the previous year and broken an ankle or something and now has to get back up and go skiing again at, what, 70 miles an hour or more. Imagine how the mind could slow you down at that point, thinking, yeah. oh, I don't want to do that again. You know, uh, And so you've got to not only plan the run, plan to uh, hit perfection, but you've also got to tell your mind, no, it's not going to be like last time. It's going to be fine. I'm confident. I've practiced. I'm strong. I'm going to get through this. And so you've got to have this conversation with your mind because the whole idea is to plant in your unconscious mind that positive association, that positive mantra, so that it combats the negative one, which would otherwise trip you up. Right, sure. It's why little kids are always trying to touch the stove, and then one day you don't catch them in time, and then they never touch the stove again because right, exactly. they, they succeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great example of how memories are formed. You do an action, and there's an immediate and very painful result. And so you never want to do that again. And then that gets buried in your unconscious mind. You don't go around during the day thinking, oh, got to not touch the stove, got to not touch the stove. You don't bother. It's buried in your unconscious mind. It's taken over. Right. That's exactly what we're talking about. Some of those are very useful, of course, and they keep us alive and keep us from bumping into things and keep us from burning our hands. But a lot of them are not useful. They're just random traumas that we've picked up along the way that say, ah, you're no good. Or you're, every time you get in this situation, you blow it. Or uh, Yeah. Yeah, don't, don't talk to her. She's going to laugh at you just like in fourth grade and you're going to hate yourself. Dot, exactly. dot, dot. But you're 35. You know, that's not going to happen. It's time to do it differently. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a lot of what we do at The Art of Charm is really go through, find belief systems that maybe aren't serving you or are actually doing you a disservice or are serving you in another weird way but having a really deleterious or terrible effect in another area, finding them and changing, repairing, getting rid of those. Because 
that is a ton of work. It's really hard to do by yourself, if not virtually impossible. And it really has that subconscious programming effect where you think, well, this is just the way things are. Meanwhile, it's not. It's based on your beliefs, which have influenced your actions for your whole life, which have influenced your results. Precisely. That's a really good way of putting it because the the conscious mind is not aware of the way it's shaped by the unconscious mind. It just feels like that's reality. And that, and that's because that unconscious mind is one step ahead of the conscious mind all the time, but the lag is very brief. So we look out in the world and we think we're seeing the world as it is, but in fact what we're seeing is a construct that's shaped by that unconscious mind and that is so thorough and so complete and so much faster than our conscious mind that we can't keep up with it. We just accept it. We look out and we go, yeah, that's, that's life. That's the way it is. I always fall down when I try to do this. I never work out at that. I'm, I'm no good at sports or whatever the example is. Everyone has something in their life where this happened, didn't necessarily work out for them, and now they have a belief system in place because of it. Sometimes right. it's good, don't touch the stove, and sometimes it's bad. You know, making friends is hard and no one likes you or whatever. Right. Wow. So sort of zooming out and going back to the beginning, how do we change the way that we show up or how do we change the way that we can maybe focus on our emotions in important moments? Well, like that skier or like that uh, gymnast, what we want to do is start to create little mental routines for us that have the positive outcome that we want. So we need to imagine ourselves if we want to give an important speech, again, to use the kinds of examples that I'm familiar with, then we want to play that scene in our mind where the speech goes well and do that kind of self-talk to tell ourselves that, that it's going to be okay, it's going to work out well because we've rehearsed it, we know what's going to happen, the speech is great, the audience is going to love us, whatever the, whatever the mantra is for you particularly. And so it's about creating positive scenarios that you then get a chance to fulfill and working with the unconscious mind to find out what are the traps, what are the, what are the fears. Uh, and you know what those are. Every individual knows the ones. I mean, you may not like to think about them on a daily basis, but you know the ones that are tripping you up. You, like you know, as to your example, every time I go up to a girl and ask her out, she just laughs at me. Right? You know that you have those kind of beliefs if you think about it. It's about becoming self-aware and then replacing the negative patterns with positive ones. Excellent. Thanks so much. And more from you at publicwords.com. And of course, we'll link to your book, Power Cues, which is an excellent resource for this in, in just tons of detail in there too. Not 30,000 foot overview, you can do it type of stuff, but actual science, which is always welcome. It's very practical. It's very much how-to. And it's hard. What I'm asking people to do is difficult, but I think the results are worthwhile. Excellent. Thanks so much, Nick. Much appreciated and great show. A pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Great show with Nick Morgan. Really interesting. Really interested in how unconscious behavior determines our communication as well as any kind of behavior, how that determines our results. Because as we know from the art of charm, our beliefs determine our actions, which determine our results. And that is just, that cannot be overstated. The idea that most of our communications are unconscious is really powerful as well, especially when we can take over and take control of that nonverbal communication and really work on it. It found it fascinating that we can control the emotions of other people by cultivating certain emotions in ourselves as well as being able to cultivate observance and learning how other people's emotions influence us even when we think we're in control. And that vocal tonality bit, seriously interesting. I never knew that vocal tonality becomes subconsciously aligned with those around us. That was extremely surprising and very, very 
interesting for me as well and hopefully for you. Last but not least, focusing on that emotional power in crucial moments can really be the determining factor in whether or not we succeed. Let's check out a letter from a Green Beret medic who just graduated from the Art of Charm program. Always great to get mail from guys who've graduated from boot camp. It's just one big family, and honestly, we really feel that way. Here we go. Jordan, man, massive props for the episode about male friendships, specifically the core piece at the end. It made my jet-lagged wah-wah boo-boo face go away right quick. Let me quickly share a story, which you're free to share in turn if you want. As I listened to the Quora piece, I thought about two young Afghan girl patients of mine, a two-month-old and an 11-year-old. I'm a special forces medic. As far as I know, the baby lived at least beyond a week despite a male family member mishandling improvised explosives in the home. The other came in her death throes from a massive infection. Her father refused her transport to a larger American base to see a real doctor unless we paid him money to quote-unquote buy a car, which law and good sense prevented us from doing. No taxi or alternative transport would apparently suffice. We couldn't leave the area, and there was only so much I could do for the girl. She died the next day. These girls never got a chance at life, which makes me more appreciative of the life I have. My memories of them have been trying. A lot of it came pouring out shortly after the boot camp, but now I'm more aware of what's going on, and I think my AOC experience has helped me avoid what could have been noxious emotional baggage. How exactly, I can't say, but you guys are onto something big. Till we meet next, and I gotta censor his name out here, December 13 boot camp grad. He's actually still deployed overseas, so I kinda have to keep all of this on the low, but I really appreciate the email. I really appreciate you guys sending me your victories after boot camp. It really does mean a lot, and I keep telling myself that I'm gonna read more and more of these at the end of the shows, but often I go over time, and I, I do respect your intention and your time. So thanks so much, guys. I hope you enjoyed this show, and I'll see you next time. Solid show as usual, if I do say so myself. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Boot camp details, that's our live training at theartofcharm.com. And that's also where you can find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for The Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's it. You guys can also help us if you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Give us a five-star rating and write something nice. We'll love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash The Art of Charm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily and get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing training from us. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it.